Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Amen. If you were a resident in the ancient Near East, familiar with Hebrew scriptures, when you heard this story, this long, long, long story, you would immediately be given clues about the meaning of the passage. Scholar Robert Alter first worked to identify what are called type scenes found in Genesis. For instance, a woman at a well would hint that this is where a hero like Moses, like Abraham, it's where they would meet their wives. Because apparently, where wells were the ancient version of online dating. (laughs) In our culture, this use of the type scene also exists. I started a sermon with the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. You would naturally think I would be launching my Stephen King sermon series, which, after Todd heard it, might now be known as the last time Thomas preached at All Souls. (laughs) The author of John gives us a story about Jesus encountering a woman at a well. And instead of them getting married, they talk about marriage. And there's a whole lot going on in this passage. And as I read it again and again and again, trying to prepare for the sermon, three themes and three stories emerged as what John is wanting us to consider. These themes are thirst, incapability, and finally, belief. So let's begin with a story about thirst. There's a famous Moroccan story about a man wandering across the desert. He is staggering, shoulders pulled back by an enormous makeshift pack. It's midday, and he is many miles from where his camel collapsed in a panting heap. The man is about 40, with piercing beetle-black eyes framed by deep lines from a lifetime of squinting. He is neither tall nor short, rangy nor plump, neither handsome nor ugly. But instead, he's a simple man suspended between adjectives. He caressed the dune to peer out over more dunes marching toward the horizon, and his spirits sink. He stops and lowers his pack to the ground, straightening with relief. A light breeze whispers across the sand, cooling his sweat bent back. Closing his eyes, he pictures home, his wife returning from the well to cook dinner, his bright-eyed little girl, bangs cut straight across her forehead, playing in the kitchen, his soft-spoken son teasing the cat with a bit of twine, giggling as the animal confuses instinct with play. He pictures himself reclining on a cushion, And he can almost see his wife's expression 
as her eyes sweep across the house. Her expression filled with satisfaction, food on the fire, her children safe, and her husband finally home. She walks over and places her hand on his shoulder, the type of touch between couples that shows the language of love is expressed in a thousand moments. Home, he thinks. He's got to get moving because he has to get home. He opens his eyes. The bright shoulder desert now looks encouraging when viewed through memories of where he wants to be. Hefting his pack, he takes a step, modest ankles sinking in the sand as he again stumbles forward. Now the story goes that his body was found weeks later. Reportedly, two Bedouin traders were astonished to find in his backpack an enormous skin full of water. This man had what he needed to survive the entire time, one of them sadly remarked. He had what he needed. Incapability. A story about incapability. Jay Garrett was the shortest boy in our class. A fact made especially bad in the seventh grade when all the girls mounted at their own upward assault, towering over the prepubescent. And Zane Drum. Zane Drum was the most overweight. And in Gastonia, where I grew up, that meant very overweight. In a movie, a natural alliance would develop between them as they banded together as mocked outsiders. But in this case, a mutual enmity developed between them. It was as if each of them recognized their straggler status on the Serengeti Plains of junior high. They played pranks on each other. A stool with Jay's name on it was placed by the water fountain. A desk stolen from first grade was left as the only remaining place to sit in science class when a huffing and puffing Zane finally made it through the door. They started rumors about each other, invented viral nicknames, and they turned dodgeball into a Darwinian experience. Then one day in gym class, it was announced that a new law championed by Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, implemented and required the president's fitness test. And in junior high, it should have been called the great humiliator. Because one by one, students were tested on fitness in full view of the whole class. And this was especially embarrassing at the pull-up bar where hormone-fueled boys practically herniated themselves to pull their pimpled chins over the bar. And instead of noticing, most of the girls in the class sat quietly. Some even decorated their caboodles. For those who know what a caboodle is. <laughs> when Zane approached the bar, a hush fell over the class, and I watched as his ears reddened. And slowly, he shook his head and walked away.
trying to ignore the general snicker. Noticeably, Jay was silent. And it wasn't until he approached the bar that we understood why. He would have to really jump to reach it. And to give him credit, he tried to walk over casually. With a lurching first try, we all watched as he came well short. He tried again to the sound of a stifled mirth in the class. And then, in an act of humiliation, the gym coach went to grab the stool, and a few of the students began to laugh cruelly. Then what happened next just happened. Zane walked toward Jay, and with cat-kitten tenderness, hefted him up to the bar, where Jay did ten pull-ups, while Zane turned, glaring at the class, daring them to laugh. We were all silent. Jay finished and dropped to the ground. Thanks, he said softly to Zane. And Zane just nodded, because sometimes words cheapen moments. Belief. A story about belief. So there's this woman walking up to a well. Stop me if you've heard of this one. (laughs) She's pretty, well-preserved in her mid-thirties, with shimmering, deep brown hair. And she possesses the kind of good-natured openness in her features that too often triggered misinterpretation. She hadn't exactly had the easiest life, raised in a house beset by debt and willing to use any means necessary to keep away starvation. She had a child salaciously early, and her lack of any children afterwards was interpreted by the village biddies as divine retribution. Like most pretty people, she knew exactly how pretty she was and precisely how to use that to her advantage. By now, she had grown accustomed to the whispers around her, the gossips feasting on her scandalous marriages with the heartless ferocity of a murder of crows. She tried to shrug it off because they have no idea what she had undergone, what she had to do to protect the joy of her life, her precious son, a being whose very life force was sown into her soul. And we have all known mothers who have loved that fiercely. Because for her, by now, her child is the only justification she can use to tamp down her shame. Her self-worth is a skittish sparrow, her dignity a dishrag, and her thirst is deep. Walking up, She notices something about Jesus even before he speaks. It's the way he looks at her. Not the usual gaze of men, but instead something deeper. She feels it is as if for the first time in her life she had actually been seen. They chat, and unexpectedly he lays out everything shameful in her life. And the shame she has carried for so long is lifted 
Because once all your secrets are known, fear of their discovery disappears. And people with no secrets know how to truly live because there's nothing to hide. Authenticity cloaks their being. So the first time this woman feels claimed because despite her past, God recognized her worth. Recognized her worth. And isn't that just it? The purpose for being a follower of Christ means being claimed by the universe. It means that we all were intended. Though it's Lent, full of dark and stormy nights of the soul, and collectively, our imagination is in the wilderness. And out here in the wilds, we remember that every day is a search for living water. On this journey, we re-remember that all we need to survive this life is what we already have, what we've already been given. And on this journey, I promise if we stumble, unexpected people will steady us. When we all thirst for God's dignity, our enemies become our friends. So yes, the well is deep. And today, remember that Jesus has no bucket. No bucket except the one that is you, that is me. We are the buckets to draw up the living water for the thirst of the world. Jesus met a woman at a well, and in accepting her, flaws and all, the church itself became his bride. Amen.